Well, this morning, our plan is to return to our series on uh, the greatest stories ever told. Of course, many of you know that this is a series on the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have been all around in the Synoptic Gospels looking at various parables. I look forward to when we get back into another book and we just make our way through sequentially. But these parables have been a blessing, I know, to many of you as we have investigated those. Of course, when you think of this idea of a parable, uh, the term parable, uh, it involves a number of different types of illustrations. Today, we're just going to look at a very simple illustration that Jesus gave near the end of his earthly ministry. And the parable we're going to look at today is the parable of the blooming fig tree. Or if you're from down under and you like uh, the blooming onion, the parable of the blooming uh, fig tree. I'd like to direct your attention to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, and I'm going to read a portion of this text. We will be looking at a lot of this uh, chapter over the course of today's message. But I'd like to begin by reading verses 29 of Luke 21 through verse 36. It says this, And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Join me as I ask the Lord's help. Father, today as we examine this text of Scripture... I ask that you would uh, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We know that you uh, are the one who uh, illuminates our minds through the work of your spirit. And so today, Father, I ask that you would use this text, allow it to sit on our lives today, and allow it to change us to be different tomorrow. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's often been a great fascination with the study of the end times. So many people love to be able to investigate and try to figure out all the different things that are going to happen in the future. Sadly, that particular fascination has often led to many thinking that they can predict the exact coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of you who've been around the block, you know of various times on the news, people say, we have found out the date, or we believe this is when the Lord is going to come back. Of course, those predictions have caused numbers to bring disgrace on their own names, on Jesus' name, and oftentimes used to confuse Jesus' own disciples. 
Thankfully, the Bible does give us incredible insight into the future, of which we should be informed. We should know the scriptures. It is also uh, very uh, good that God has given us instructions or specifics on how you and I are to live as we look to those coming events in the days ahead. In our text this morning, Jesus gives us some insight about the future, but he focuses his listeners on how they are to live as they await those events. So today we're going to learn a very simple truth, and it's this. As God's kingdom draws near, be watchful of the times and yourself. So often we focus on the first. Oh, I just want to watch the times. But it's interesting. Jesus says, be watchful of the times and yourself. The context of our parable begins at the outset of Luke 21. Jesus, of course, his earthly ministry is coming to a close, and he's now in his final days of earthly ministry teaching in the city of Jerusalem. He had just pointed out in really the first four verses of Luke 21 of a widow who came and gave money in the treasury. And of course, he teaches uh, of what she gave. He knew that she gave her last two coins, what we have sometimes labeled the widow's mites. And he knew that she had given everything she had. He was aware. It's at that point that Jesus gives really kind of our first statement, our first point of this message. He gives a stunning statement. So the context, they're in the vicinity of the temple. This woman had just given, and he had taught a lesson in reference to her. Jesus now overhears a discussion about the temple, and he makes this stunning statement. Look what it says in verse 5 of Luke 21. He says, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings... He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now during Jesus' earthly ministry, there were numbers of occasions where you could almost call them the mic drop moments. Where he says something and it's like, Wow. This was a mic drop moment. The temple of which he is referring was the center of the Old Testament Jewish religious life. It was a magnificent spectacle to observe. In fact, if you ever have time, stop by my office and I'll show you a diagram of what the complex might have looked like they, as they've done different archaeology, what it would have looked like during the time that Jesus made this statement. It was, not using this term lightly, it was awesome. Herod the Great 
had begun a great expansion of the temple years before in order to, in many ways, put a good name for himself for the Jew, in the midst of the Jews. And it was incredibly impressive. One thing that he did was he extended the area of the temple area. He built a massive complex from which all the temple was built on top of. Notice in our text that they are making comments about its noble stones. Oftentimes when visiting Jerusalem, one of the things I do with our tour group is I show them a stone in the rabbinical tunnels of the western wall. It is a stone that has simply baffled archaeologists on how in the world it even got placed there. It's a stone that is 44 feet long, 10 feet high. Its width is hidden within the wall. But the guess is that it would be somewhere around 250 to 300 tons. And it is simply a stone in the wall around the temple complex. And here they are making statements on the stones that were part of the temple complex. Not only that... They made comments about its offerings. Did you catch that in verse 5? It says they were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. What were these? People no doubt donated all types of items to the temple. Just like uh, in various parks, you have people who donate their benches in memory of this or this. Well, the temple was a place that no doubt many had made offerings. It was probably a lot like a museum of treasures. Josephus records how Herod had donated a golden vine with clusters of golden grapes over six feet tall. That's just one of this beautiful objects and all the offerings given at that temple. They abounded. It was an incredible complex to behold. I remember as a young man exiting the subway when I visited New York City. We had traveled from Brooklyn, the Bay Ridge area, into Manhattan. And we got out of the subway right at the foot of the Twin Towers in New York City. Those of you who lived there over 20 years ago know when you walked out of the subway and you came upon that area of Manhattan and saw those mammoth structures, you were, you were in awe. If someone would have told me then that they would be gone one day, I would have said, no way. There is no way that could ever happen. Well, when Jesus said this stunning statement, his listeners would have responded in much the same way. There's no way. Jesus tells them that none of the stones would be on each other. Now here in 2021, it is true. When you go into the temple structure, yes, some of the walls around it, which would not be included, some of the walls, even the western wall is there, but the temple proper, it's gone. None of the stones stand on each other. All of this on a surface level tells us this, Jesus knows the future. He knows everything. 
He predicts all things rightly. Why can Jesus do that? Because Jesus is God. He's the God of the universe. In fact, it's interesting. I would say the temple was talking about the temple. Because who was Jesus? Jesus was God who templed among us. Literally the word in John 1 is this, and God tabernacled among us. He templed among us. And so here is the God of the universe telling us about the future. And one of the events that he will discuss in just a moment would happen 40 years later when those stones would be removed from each other in A.D. 70. He was explaining a judgment that would come upon the Jewish nation for rejecting him as Messiah. He had given them ample opportunities, and they would have many opportunities even in the coming decades. But his initial judgment, as he would say, would come. And I'll tell you, and a reminder to all of us, it will come on all of Jesus' rejectors. The Bible says, there is, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given among men whereby you must be saved. Your life will rise or fall in what you do with Jesus Christ. God's tabernacle, God himself. So Jesus gives this incredible statement, stunning statement. And of course, his listeners have to respond. They have to ask some questions. Look what they say in verse number seven. They said, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So they asked two questions. One, when? Two, what will be the sign when they are about to take place? What Jesus does over the the next number of verses is he begins to answer those two questions kind of in opposite order. And what he does is now he gives a panorama of the future. So we've seen a stunning statement, but now I want you to see his panorama of the future. Who was Jesus? Jesus was, as we know, the perfect king, the perfect priest, but he was also the perfect prophet. What did prophets do? The prophets told the word of the Lord. Jesus was the perfect prophet because he was the word of the Lord. And on his, uh, during his earthly ministry, he often told the word of God to, uh, about the future and what would occur. And here he gives prophecies of what would occur in the future. Now, one key, when you and I come to a bit of prophecy that Jesus gives, one key when interpreting it is to understand the need to, at times, to toggle between nearer events and further off events. What we call this is often telescoping. Just like with a telescope, you're looking at, sometimes you look at something that's near, sometimes you look at something afar off. Oftentimes when a prophecy is given, there's some things that are close and some things that are far away. 
Often when prophets in the Old Testament foretold the future, it would be almost like you looking at a mountain range. You would be able to see the whole mountain range. However, you would, uh, you would see that some peaks seem to be close, and there may be some that are a little bit farther off, but you don't know how much distance is between the closer ones and the farther ones. But when they give the prophecy, it's all like it's together, but you don't know what's in between. An example of this is found in Isaiah 61. Let me illustrate it this way. If, you've, uh, if you're able to mark your Bibles here, we're going to be back here in just a second. But if you can turn your Bibles to Isaiah 61. And I want to give you an example of a prophet who gives a prophecy. And some of the things are in the near future or somewhat near future at that point, And some were further off. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before Jesus, the Messiah, shows up. And he says this about Jesus' coming. Look what it says in verse 1. He's speaking as of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now I want you to notice that last phrase. And the day of vengeance of our God. So that's a prophet 700 years before Jesus talking about the Messiah and what he would do. Now I want you to take your Bibles and go back to Luke for a moment. Go back to Luke, and I want you to go to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins to tell you of his fulfillment of this prophecy. But it's interesting what he does. In Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, listen to what Jesus does. And he came to Nazareth... When he had been uh, when he had been brought where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So here he is; he's reading Isaiah's prophecy. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This so he goes right to this prophecy. He says, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me." Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And look at what he does. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he takes Isaiah's prophecy and he says, all of this, and he gets up to a certain point and he says, I have fulfilled all of this prophecy today. But he stops before that next statement. The day of what? Vengeance. Why? Because the day of vengeance of what he's going to bring is a prophecy that's farther off in the future. 
But when Isaiah gave it, it's like it's all together. In our text, what Jesus is about to do is he's about to foretell both near and distant events. And that's why I want you, as you come back to Luke chapter 21, listen now what he tells about near and future events and prophecy. I'll begin reading in verse 10. And he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. But your endurance, by, by your endurance, you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, For women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place... Straighten up and raise your hands because your redemption is drawing near. Wow. A panorama of the future. Now, as Jesus gave those statements, some of those events were fulfilled in A.D. 70. They were initially fulfilled there when Jerusalem had been surrounded by the Roman armies. Many fell by the sword and many were led captive. In fact, Jerusalem was trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Jesus adds this, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I personally believe that we are in 
that time right now. He then tells of a more distant peak in the future in which he himself will return physically and set up his kingdom. Let me read it to you again. Verse 27. It says this. And they will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So in this, as we just take a survey of it, what you see is this. Jesus tells us about future events. And I'll tell you, it did happen and it will happen. Cataclysmic signs in heaven will precede his second coming. That's what he talks about in verse 25. In fact, I personally believe that the book of Revelation tells of these things that will happen in the future. It is in the midst of all of this that Jesus now gives us our parable and he gives key exhortations to his listeners. So now we've come to a lesson from the fig tree. Jesus tells them now to look at the fig tree. Now probably they could have looked pretty much in any direction. Because I've told you that the fig trees were very common in that particular area. Listen to what he says. He says, and he told them a parable. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So as I said, there were numbers around them. Luke adds, look at all the trees. My next Holy Land trip, Lord willing, is going to be next year at the end of March and beginning of April. And no doubt, Lord willing, you'll see the blooming of these trees at that particular time. But what Jesus does is this. He says, whenever you see all these things blooming, it's just, it's obvious Summer is nearing. But when you see these cataclysmic events begin to happen, know that the kingdom of God is near. Just like in Georgia, we know that when the dogwoods start to bloom and the azaleas start to flower, that the masters is about to be played. No, that summer is coming. It's going to be here at any moment. What Jesus is saying is this, when you see these events coming, when you see these events happening, God's kingdom is close. But then he gives a very difficult statement. In fact, it has baffled expositors trying to figure this thing out. Listen to what he says in verse 32. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all Has taken place. There's been much debate about how to take this. In fact, good people differ. Okay? Some see this as the generation that Jesus is speaking to at that time. They see it as being fulfilled then, but of course, one of the problems with that interpretation is that Jesus 
didn't end up showing up as he said he was going to do in verse 27. And so some people say, was Jesus mistaken? Did he not have it all right? And of course, that's not the case. Jesus knows all. I'm going to give you my personal take. I personally believe that Jesus, when he talks about that generation, Jesus is referring to the generation that would be there when those final cataclysmic signs begin in verse 25. So when he says, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and when all of these things and the distress on the earth, these events will happen in such a sequence that that generation that sees the beginning of them will see them all fulfilled. I believe that's substantiated in the book of Revelation and other prophecies of the final day. God will bring this earth to its final, I mean, to its judgment here, and he will do it very quickly in that generation. For me, I believe in in seven years. It's almost like a baseball game. When you show up at a baseball game, you're expecting to be able to see it all. Okay, you show up at a baseball game, there's nine innings, it's like they're sequential, boom, 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 boom. And you show up at the game, you're going to see the whole game. Lord willing. And I, what I believe he's saying here is this, when this coming happens and when those events begin to happen, it'll come quickly. Suddenly. All in one generation. And so the question for us today is this, so what does that mean for me? What does that mean for us? It's interesting as Jesus is giving all of these truths and some of them are near, some of them are distant. And of course, all the Bible is written for our admonition. He closes with some exhortations to his listeners. Yes, he's talking to that generation. But I believe what he's telling also applies as well to the generation who will read those words In the final days, when all of those events happen, the Bible says the grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of God endureth forever. They will have this. They will read this and they will be able to examine it and and place their faith in it and know it's coming suddenly. But further, I believe this application can be extended to us as well in 2020 because you know what? We do live in the last days. We are, uh, with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, how long they will be, it is of, I mean, God has been very patient. But the lesson for all of us that I gave at the beginning is this, as God's kingdom draws near, be watchful of the times, but yourselves and yourselves. Jesus gives all these signs and warns them about being led astray. But then I want you to look at your Bibles and look at verse 34. He says, but watch what? Yourselves, lest your hearts be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He tells you to watch what? Yourselves. You know what we often like to do? We like to watch the times. I mean, we like to watch TV. We like to watch all these other things. 
And we like to watch, oh, I want to pick these tides. And so often we, we try to focus on those particular things. But I think the real focus here is this. What does Jesus do after he tells them all these things? He says, but watch what? Yourselves. Because it's the one thing you and I can do. I mean, I'm not going to change the moon. I'm not going to change the sun. I'm not going to change the tides. But I can tell you something that I can watch out for with God's help is I can watch this heart. So what is it that you and I can do? How can we take this text? And I would say, first of all, if if you just chew on the whole thing, the first application would be this. Some of you need to wake up. All of this talks about Jesus, the God of the universe, who is going to show up on the scene and he's going to put everything back and he's going to reign. And I'll tell you this, it's all what you do with Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? Will you submit to King Jesus and believe that he is the one? Some of you in this room, you have heard about Jesus. You have possibly investigated Jesus. But some of you need to embrace Jesus as your Lord. Because he is coming back and everything he says has happened and will happen. So some of you need to embrace him. But I would say for the vast majority of you, it may not be that you need to wake up initially to him. You need to watch your own heart. In fact, way back in the book of Proverbs, what what does Solomon say? He says this, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. You need to make sure you're cultivating, as we learned a few weeks ago in our, our, our winter series of cultivating a heart for God, you need to be careful because weeds can jump up in that. It says in our text that you need to, let me read it again, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighted down. You know how like sometimes when rain happens and let's say like normally we have two big planters in the front of our, uh, by our front door. And if it rains a ton, sometimes those planters fill up with water. And if you try to move them, they become weighted down. We need to be very careful that we don't get weighted down with certain things. In fact, an example of this in the Old Testament is a guy by the name of Pharaoh. Did God perform incredible signs in front of Pharaoh? Yes, But his heart was what? Weighted down. In fact, the Bible says it was a hard heart. It was like concrete. You and I who have been given a new heart, who know Christ, we need to be careful that we don't allow our hearts to be weighted down. In what ways? What areas are we supposed to watch? He gives you three. Dissipation. You say, what's that? That is this. Unbridled indulgence. It's interesting, it's coupled with drunkenness. And as I've looked at certain like lexicons, sometimes they just put them both together. But I'm taking them a little bit more generally, and it's this idea. You and I, in a fallen world, we can have unbridled indulgence in things that are forbidden. Sometimes they are good gifts that God gives this world, but we, you could say, indulge in them. Of course, God gave sex, and he gave a particular place where sex is supposed to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage. Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled, and you're supposed to commit yourself to that. That's why Jesus says in another text, 
Uh, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. He says, Mar- you can indulge in this, but in one place. It's in marriage. But what we can do is our hearts can be weighted down in indulging all of these things. So dissipation and sex. And then he goes on to drink. Drunkenness. This was a specific indulgence. Of course, it's always been out there when it comes to the dangers of alcohol and what it can lead to. We have to be careful in reference to it. What does the Bible say? The Bible says, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. You are to be filled with the Spirit. And there's lots of cautions in your Bible of being careful how you handle that. And being watchful of your heart because your heart is so often prone to get involved. He says, watch your hearts. Don't give yourself. So you'd say he gives kind of uh, a general area of indulgence. Then he gives a specific with drunkenness. And then he goes to a subtle indulgence. You say, what's that? The cares of this life. You know, these can be a lot of different things. They can be good things that we allow to become the main thing in our life. As little as just fixing up our houses. You can get so involved in that and and it can just take over everything you do. Your job can become this. Sports can become this. So often things in our life can distract us. Of course, Paul tells Timothy, he says, No one that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of this life. And I'll tell you this, this life has a lot of octopus arms that are wrapping around you to try to pull you back from living for what you should be living for. That's why Paul would tell Titus, he says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It should train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions that we should, here it is, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives where in this present age, and I love how he closes it out, you're doing this, you're waiting for the, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says so much the same thing. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every what? Weight. Weight may not be a sin. It could be just other things that are weighting us down. Because then he adds, and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and you know what? He's coming back. Why are we to do this so the day doesn't come up on us like a trap and surprise us? You say, what's the final thing I can do, Pastor Brian? You can pray. Look what he says in verse 36. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. You know what we're to do? We are to be praying always. There is probably nothing that can help you 
more significantly than you developing a consistent time of talking to God in prayer. Having his ear and saying, God, thank you for revealing what you've revealed to me today in my devotions. And I remember you telling me, Lord, in in the Lord's prayer, that your name is hallowed and that thy kingdom would come. And Father, I'm waiting for that kingdom, but until that day, I'm going to occupy until you come. I'm going to purify myself. I'm going to walk with you each day. And I'll tell you this, those of you who do not have a prayer life, it, it maybe all it consists of is before your meal. You probably are going to be very much surprised. Because what prayer does is prayer has a way of preparing you and helping your heart to get to the right place. That's why Paul, when he tells you the armor that you're supposed to wear during this age, he says this, praying always. Okay, this is in Ephesians 6 verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You know who you're supposed to pray for? Not only yourself, but you're supposed to pray for all the saints. Pray for each other. God, would you help them to be prepared? So that they would be what? I believe at the end of the text it says uh, in verse 36 that we would be able to stand before the Son of Man. I think the standing in that verse doesn't seem to be standing in judgment at his return. But it means this, to be standing in confidence. You have been praying, you have been watching over your heart, and so when he comes, you know what? There is a confidence. It's like what he says at the end of verse 28. You are one who straightens up and you raise your hands because your redemption has drawn nigh. Why? Because you've been expectant of it. You have lived ready for it. That's why the apostle John, who recorded the apocalypse, of Revelation says this, and now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, what? We may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So Lebanon Baptist Church, we who live in these last times, you know what? Of any people, we ought to be ready. How do I do this? We have hearts tender, softened to God's word, We're pulling out the weeds that so often entangle us. We have our hearts tender. We have our knees bent. And we have our arms ready for his coming. And we say as the Apostle Paul says, Maranatha, which is this, even so, Lord, quickly come. May God help us to learn from the blooming fig tree.